Take your copy of God's Word with me this morning and open it to page one. <laughs> Shouldn't matter what translation uh, you you prefer or you use or have with you. Uh, we're going to begin in Genesis as we have um, week to week over the last few weeks. Uh, today we are uh, concluding a series titled Entrusted, a series, a sermon series about stewardship, about managing and using all that God has given us and all that he has made us to be for his glory. We began four or five weeks ago in Matthew's gospel in the parable of the talents, where there we saw the the master who gives to three of his uh, servants, five, two, and one talents apiece according to their ability. Those servants then take in their master's absence and uh, put that those talents, those sums of money to work for their master. Uh, uh, and when he returns, they give him, uh, uh, well, the first two, the five-talent and the two-talent servants, give him back double what he gave them. The five-talent servant returns ten, the two-talent servant returns four. Uh, but the one-talent servant who went and buried his talent in the ground, fearing his master, uh, receives the punishment of his master uh, on his master's return. We learned in that parable, through that parable, that God, who is the giver of all things to us, Intends that we use all that he has given and all that he has made us to be for his glory, for his purposes, for his kingdom. Then the week after that, we looked at, uh, we began looking at several of the, the things that God gives to us. And that first week after that week about the parable, we looked at our time. And we saw that God, who is the creator of all time, gives us and intends for us to use every moment of our lives for his glory and for the expansion of his kingdom. The week after that, we looked at our abilities, the, the strengths, the education, the talents, the skills that God has allowed us to have and to uh, look at Scripture to see how we ought to use those things in our lives for God's glory in the expanse of His kingdom. And now today, we are going to look at third category of God's provision, that is our possessions, and how we use everything that God has given to us for His glory. We're going to begin in Genesis, but then we're going to jump to Job. We'll be in 1 Timothy and then also in 2 Corinthians today. So again, it's a bit of a a Bible drill Sunday for you who uh, get excited about those kinds of things. If you want to compete with your neighbor next to you, that's just fine. Uh, If you uh, need some help finding your way around the Bible today, just uh, uh, look to a friend next to you who looks like they know what they're doing and ask them to help you uh, to, to find your way to the passage of Scripture that we may be in. Uh, the scriptures will also be on the screen behind me as we move relatively quickly through these things. But if you want to stick a thumb in those different places now at this time, uh, you may. We're going to begin in Genesis. And throughout these other several places of scripture, we're going to see that God, who is the, crea- God is the creator and the giver of all things that we have. And because he has generously given to us all things in Christ, we ought to use all that he has given for his glory. I would hope that as a result of studying God's word today, that together we would look upon all that we have and seek to use it all regularly, generously, and sacrificially for God's fame, for his glory, and for the expansion of his kingdom. There are a good many songs and quotes and even television shows about money. When we think about possessions, and, and particularly as we're talking about stewardship and managing things, we all just go to uh, often to the place of money. So, God, okay, church, this is my tithing sermon, okay? In part. Not all of it, but in part. This is the money sermon, the one that if you're visiting with us today, you probably were hoping I wouldn't preach, but uh, you're going to get it anyway. 
It's important for us to understand that all that we have is given to us by God and that God intends that all that he has given to us to be used for his glory, including money, including finances and the things that we use money for our, our possessions, our home, our car, our television, our other electronic devices. All these things God intends to use for his fame and for his glory in our lives. They're ultimately his and he has given them to us as stewards, as managers of those things to use for his fame. And we're going to look at that here in scripture this morning. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? And we'll begin in Genesis 1, verse 1, and then we'll jump to Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Scripture begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says this. Job in his life, a time of deep suffering. Job arose and tore his robe. We'll look at the context of this passage a little bit later. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Worship the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The word of God, you may be seated. We see from these two passages, Genesis 1, 1 and Job 1, 20 and 21, that God, first of all, is the owner and giver of all things. If you're following along uh, the notes in your worship guide, you can begin filling in the blanks here. God is the owner and giver of all things. Genesis 1, 1 tells us that he created it all. God created everything that we see. We have each week looked at the first several verses of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Have you noticed that? And to God's creative activity as we consider using all we have and all we are for his glory. Almost every week we've begun in Genesis. It is not by accident that we return again to the first chapter of Genesis once more. As we consider stewarding, managing all of our possessions. Everything that God has given to us for his glory. The first words of the Bible here in Genesis 1 make it entirely clear to us who is the source and the creator of all things. Doesn't it? That source and creator of all things is not you or me or, or some other existential reality, but God himself, the supreme being, the one who exists outside of time and space. He who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. In the beginning, when things began to begin, God created the heavens and the earth. Those Five words, the heavens and the earth, that phrase is an artistic way of saying everything. The writer of Genesis, Moses, is not saying that God only created the things in the sky and the things on the ground. He is saying in poetic language that God created everything that we see, everything that exists. Everything was created by God. And because he created all from nothing, he is the owner of it all. In a manner of speaking, God holds both the copyright and patent on everything. It's all his intellectual property. It is all the result of his handiwork. It belongs to him. God who has created all things is the final and ultimate owner of all things. And if we have anything, if God has blessed us with anything, money, a good job, a nice house, a car that runs, 
loving family, education. If God has given to us anything, it is because, or if we have anything, it is because God has given it to us. He's the owner and the giver of all things. He created it all. And as Job chapter one, verse 21 tells us, 20 and 21 tells us he can give and take at his pleasure. God is the owner. He's the giver. He created it all and he can give and take at his pleasure. Those who own the copyright or patent to works of their creation may at any time decide to allow anyone else to use their work to create or to improve other works. But at the same time, they may choose to disallow the use of their work by others, can't they? It's theirs. It's their intellectual property. They own the copyright to that book or that piece of literature. They own the intellectual rights to that patent. And they can determine how it is used and and by whom. It is theirs and they have the claim upon how their work may be used. And so, friends, it is with God and all that he has created. He's a creator of all things. He's the owner and giver of all things. And because he owns everything by his own creation of everything, he can give and take at his will. And there's no, and we find no fault in him for doing so. It all belongs to him. Job's story is an ancient one. Some believe that the story of Job takes place even before the days of Abraham. Job, we read in Job chapter 1, was a wealthy man with a large family and was himself very prosperous. He was faithful to the Lord, but in the course of time, Satan accused Job before God, saying, essentially, Job is only faithful to you because you've given him all this stuff. You've made him wealthy. You have given him a a huge family. You've given him all of these things. Take it all away, says Satan to God, and he'll curse your name. Just watch. So God allows Satan and natural forces to take away, to remove all of Job's prosperity. His children die. His wealth is wiped out. His own health is put at risk. And Satan watched to see how Job would respond to God. The righteous man Job, in his suffering, responds this way. Naked, I came into the world. And naked I shall return. I came with nothing and I will take nothing with me, says Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. All that I have is from the Lord, says Job. It is his to give and it's his to take. It belongs to him. He can do what he wants with it. And how does he finish this prayer in this horrible dark time of his life? Naked I came into the world. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Does he finish? So what? Nothing matters. I quit. No, naked I came into the world, naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is good and praiseworthy. And whether I am rich or poor, whether I am hungry or satisfied, whether I am healthy or on my deathbed, whatever the Lord gives, whatever he takes, he is worthy of praise, says Job. God is the owner and the giver of all things. He created it all and he can give and take at his pleasure. So dear friends, as you begin to think and begin to lay the groundwork for how you will use all that God has given to you for his glory, begin here by holding what God has given to you with reverence for the giver. Hold what God has given you, your money, your home, your car, your financial situation, the possessions in your home, 
Hold all of those things with reverence, with a heart of worship for God who has given those, for God who has provided. I pray that we would allow Genesis 1.1 and Job 1.21 to shape our view of our possessions, dear friends. Whether you have much or whether you have little, none of it ultimately is yours. None of it is ultimately ours. It, It belongs to God. Neither you nor I created these things from nothing. And we did not choose what skills we would have to make a living by. We did not determine what family we would be born into. And we were not there at the creation of the universe, even to give our input, to give our two cents to God as to what would be the best thing to do with everything he would create. Everything is his. You are his. And he may do what he wants with all of it. And there's none of us who can tell him otherwise. Likewise, friends, if you have much, if, if, if God has blessed you with great wealth and ease of life, with a, with a comfortable standard of living, if God has blessed you with much, if he has made you wealthy in this age, with reverence for the one who has given it to you, resist the temptation to think that you have made your life so. Resist the temptation to take credit for your position. Be humble before God. And with gratitude, use the wealth that he has given to you for the good of others and the spread of the gospel. If God has made you wealthy, if God has allowed you a comfortable standard of living, if he has provided generously and abundantly to you, then humble yourself before God with reverence for him and the gifts that he gives, lest God humiliate you before men. And dear friends, you who have little, those whom God has allowed to be poor in this age, with reverence in your heart for the giver of all things, be grateful to God that he has seen fit to allow you to be free of the temptation to think too highly of yourself. If God has given you little, be grateful for the freedom that you have with the little he has blessed you with. You may hear that and think that that's, that's, that's crazy talk pastor free to live with little. In 2008, 2009, I was in seminary, finishing up my last year of seminary. And it was at that time that the financial uh, crisis hit the United States. The, um, the, the housing uh, market, you know, bottom dropped out of that. And uh, all of these stocks that had been artificially inflated all came crashing. And uh, you all remember all the fallout of that. At the time where I was going to seminary, I lived in the second wealthiest county per capita in the United States, in Marin County, California. I was not wealthy. I lived on cheap campus housing. But we lived in a neighborhood and in a county of very wealthy people. We knew people who were VPs of like Wells Fargo and uh, Merrill Lynch and other financial corporations in, there in San Francisco. Um, people who had more money than they knew what to do with. And when 2008 and 2009 hit, people went in this very wealthy uh, county where most of their money was tied up in uh, investments. They went into a panic terrified about what might happen next. Like I said, I lived in a wealthy county, though I myself was far from wealthy. I had maybe a thousand dollars to my name. And do you know how I felt during the crash of 2008 and 2009? Just fine. (laughs) The Lord had blessed at that time in my life that, that, that I had little 
And while I would have wished for much, if I had much uh, placed in stocks and bonds and investments and other things, my life would have been in total turmoil. But in 2008 and 2009, when I was dirt poor and had maybe $1,000 to my name, when the wealthiest people in the nation are losing their minds, I'm free. I still had a job that was paying me, but the paycheck that I had, I had received on a regular basis, I was still able to go to Starbucks and get my coffee when I wanted to. My life didn't change because God had blessed me with very little at the time. So if God has given you little, if God has allowed you to be poor in this age, be grateful for the freedom that you have with the little that he has blessed you with. God is the owner and the creator, the giver of all things. He made it all and he gives and takes at his pleasure. So hold what God has given you with reverence for the giver. That being the base for our understanding of wealth and possessions and where they really come from and and who really owns all of those things. Let us look then at how we ought to steward, how we ought to use the things that God has given to us, whether he's made us wealthy or whether he's allowed us to be poor, how should we go about looking at all that God has given to us to use for his glory? And as we do so, I would encourage us to look to God who sets the standard for our stewardship, for our management of what he has given. We ought not first to look to man or the the wisdom of financial planners to determine how we use what God has given to us. We ought to look first to God and how he gives to us to look at the pattern for our giving or for our using of what he has given to us. Look with me at the book of Lamentations. This is a little past midway in your Bible. It's after the prophet Jeremiah. Lamentations chapter 3. Verses 22 through 24. This Old Testament book of Lamentations was written during the people of Israel's exile in Babylon, likely by the, written likely by the prophet Jeremiah, who is often called the weeping prophet. And if you read much of Jeremiah or Lamentations, you'll get the picture as to why. In the several chapters of Lamentations, the, this book expresses in poetic form the collective grief of the people of Israel for God's discipline upon their idolatry by sending them into exile in a foreign nation. But then as we get toward the end of the book, in chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, remember the context of Lamentations is grieving over the discipline that the Lord has put upon his people. In the middle of grief, we read this, Lamentations three twenty-two through 24. The writer says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In the middle of grieving, in the middle of the lowest of low points in the life of the people of Israel... The prophet Jeremiah writes this as part of, part of his prayer of, of grief. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And even when things are horrible, even when we live in exile, away from our homeland, under a, an enemy people, a foreign people, even there, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Jeremiah is reminding the people of Israel that even at their worst, even at their lowest moment, that God still gives new mercies each day. God is there 
inheritance and he is their most valuable possession he is their constant provider even in the worst of possible scenarios he gives to them regularly and so when we look at how we ought to give let us look or how we ought to use our possessions let us look at how god gives to us he gives to us regularly there is literally no day There's no moment of any day in which God is not gracious to you. He is constantly, regularly gracious to us. There are two different ways that we understand God's grace biblically. On the one hand, we have what are called common graces. Common grace begins with God not putting to death every sinner at the moment of their first sin. The fact that you have breath in your lungs today is part of God's common grace. The, the, the fact that there are people who do not know Christ, Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, that they have not yet submitted to his lordship over their life, but they are still living today is part of God's grace. Yeah. Air in our lungs, roofs over our heads, food in our bellies, clothes on our back, jobs to work to provide a living. These are all part of God's common graces that he, he gives freely to, to all. On the other hand, we have what are biblically understood as special or saving graces. Common graces, grace of God that everyone receives. Special grace, saving grace that only those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ receive. God gives grace to all in seeing to to our uh, common needs. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, right? But at the same time, God only gives his saving grace. God only gives salvation from sin, forgiveness of sin, and a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. God gives regularly common graces. And friends, to those of us who have come to know Christ, to submit to him as Lord of our lives, we also know in a regular, ongoing day, the the regularity of his saving grace. At the first moment of our placing faith in Jesus and, and submitting our lives to his kingship, to his rule, we are immediately at that moment saved from our sin. And every day we are being saved from sin. Till one day at the end of time when God makes all things new, we will be finally saved from our sin. Each and every day his mercies are new, especially to us who know Christ. Every day, we who know Jesus have, have the regular opportunity of remembering God's saving grace and extending it through sharing the gospel to those who do not yet believe. Yeah. Dear friend, if you're here this morning and you are only a recipient of God's common graces, you have not yet placed faith in Jesus Christ to receive his saving grace. You've not yet trusted Christ who died for your sins and was raised from the dead again. I, I, I ask of you today, what is stopping you from being saved? You who experience the common grace of God every day, breath in your lungs, food in your belly, roof over your head, clothes on your back. What is keeping you from admitting your sin and trusting in God who freely forgives all who will give their lives and faith to Jesus? Would you do so today? If you have not yet, would you do so today? We who know that God gives regularly ought to then make it the rhythm of our lives to use everything every day in worship for the one who gives it. God gives regularly, and so we ought to make it the rhythm of our life to use everything every day on a regular basis in worship for the one who gives it. It is easy for us, I think, to immediately, when we talk about possessions and and using everything that God has given to us, to immediately think of money first when it comes to this topic. 
In our Western context, surely money is the currency of our economy. We work, get a paycheck, and with that paycheck, we purchase those things that meet our needs. I don't know anybody, maybe some of you work in a barter trade community, but I, I doubt that. Some of you may have grown up uh, on a farm or in an agricultural context where you did have other neighbors who farmed different crops, and so you would trade with one another. But for the most part, our economy thrives, it, it, it rolls on money. So money is certainly part of our possessions, part of the things that God has given to us to manage for his glory on a regular basis, on a daily basis. But so are the things that money buys. We are to use regularly our homes for the glory of God. We should consider our homes as possessions to be used for God's glory. We ought to ask, are, are our homes, is the place where I live the, and, and, and among the neighbors on my street, is my home regularly a place of prayer and safety for our children and for those in need? Am I regularly using my home for the glory of God? Our cars fall into this category too. Are we using them with gratitude for the convenience of life that they provide? Or you just see your vehicle as a means to an end? Are we using our cars, our uh, uh, automobiles as literal vehicles for bringing people near to Christ? Are we willing to use our vehicles regularly to transport others to work or to school, to doctor's appointments, to Bible study groups, to discipleship meetings, to pick people up for Sunday morning worship? These are things that God has given to us to be used for his glory. Are we looking at them to be used regularly on a regular basis in such way? Our homes fall into this category. Our cars do as well. But so also do our phones, our tablets, our computers, those electronic devices that we have and buy with the money that God provides to us. Now, these things are not in and of themselves evil. Your computer is not an evil thing. Don't call me over to your house this afternoon to exercise your computer. But your tablet, your phone, your smartphone, all of these things, all technical, technological devices in your life can be sources of evil and can come to be idols in our lives. Things that either we worship or things that distract us from worship of the one true God. Smartphones are ubiquitous. I won't ask the really revealing question, but if you own a smartphone, just raise your hand. All right, that's most of you, okay? I wouldn't do the other way around. All right, so all of us have, have these many supercomputers in our pockets at all time. Are you managing and using the technological devices that God has allowed you to purchase, to use in your daily life, each day in a way that pleases God? Are you stewarding everything, including your smartphones, your computers, your tablets, in a way that glorifies and pleases God. Or with the same device, are you reading God's word in the morning and then looking at explicit images in the afternoon? Do you play songs of praise on Spotify at lunch and then before going to bed, take to Facebook or to Instagram or Twitter to worship at the shrine of self-esteem or to type out a quick insult toward those who are not quite like you? Everything, every moment, every day, dear friends, must find its place in our constant rhythm of worship to God, including your smartphone. It can be a means of worshiping the one true God and glorifying him and bring praise and honor and glory to his name, 
Or it can be a thing that allows the, the evils of sin to continually enter in your life and to sit there and to fester and to chase after things that are not God. He who gives new mercies every morning deserves our regular and ongoing use of all that he has given for his glory. God gives regularly. So let the rhythm of our life be to use everything every day in worship for the one who gives it. On the topic of using all things with regularity, this implies a sense of discipline, doesn't it? Of knowing when and how are the right times and the right ways to use the things that God has given to us. We need to be disciplined. We have a disciplined approach to using in a regular way the things that God has given to us. We need to know and be aware of, have a personal, kind of keep personal stock of of the inventory that God has blessed our lives with so that we can have an understanding of how we ought to use all of these things for his glory. I think the best place for us to start this discipline of using all things for for God's glory in our lives is to begin with our finances. So much comes down to finances. Without money, we can't buy the smartphones that are in our pockets this morning. Without money, we likely cannot buy a house or a car or you know, pay the rent on our apartment or whatever the case may be. And so the first step to regularly stewarding, regularly using all that God has given to you for his glory is, I think, to start with your finances. So I have a few diagnostic questions to ask you and that you can ask yourself. First of all, as you consider making it the rhythm of your life to use everything every day in the worship for the one in worship for the one who gives it ask yourself this question do i have a regular budget do i know how much money is coming in how much god has blessed me with and do i know how much is going out and where it is going to if you have a budget ask yourself well if you don't have a budget get one <laughs> develop one uh, by the way i have some tools for you uh, as you leave this morning, if, if you need to do some uh, some uh, budget renovation in your life or you need to work on that a little bit better or just have some tools for beginning to budget if you never have before. Um, as you leave this morning on our welcome desk, uh, there are several stacks of paper that look kind of like this. It's probably hard for you to see. Um, on the one side, there are, there are five different categories for each. One for uh, different situations of life. There's one for those who are single, living by themselves. Those who are single with uh, maybe a child at home. Uh, those who are married with no children, married with two children. And I think one married with four children, which is the one that I have. And uh, we only have three kids in our house. And so um, I'm praying that I'm not holding this as some sort of... Uh, clue of what's going to happen in our life. My wife's shaking her head. No, Lord, please not. So anyway, I'm just going to have to adjust it a little bit. If you need help knowing how to budget, pick up one of these sheets on your way out. Okay. There's two sides Uh, on the one side where it has uh, in the top right hand corner, the the kind of person or family situation that it's meant for. um, There is a kind of a breakdown of gross household income uh, and there's different categories. You can kind of find your your salary, your income there. uh, And then how much to to set aside for, for giving to the church, um, to, to count on having to pay for taxes. Uh, thank you, Uncle Sam. And then net spending on all sorts of other things, housing, food, transportation, so on and so forth. Then on the backside is a worksheet that you can work through based
based on the percentages on one side. You can do a little worksheet on the back side. So you just put all your information in there, get out the calculator on your smartphone and use it to the glory of God to figure out uh, a budget for yourself. Start there. If you don't have a budget, develop one. If you've not been on a strict budget, use this tool to, to help you to get there. This comes from Crown Financial Services, which is a, a, a Christian biblical-based uh, financing resource uh, company. Their website is crown.org, and I highly recommend them if you're looking for like a financial tune-up. So as you think about using what God has given to you regularly, start with a budget. Do you have one? If the answer is yes, ask the next question. Have I budgeted for gospel giving? Have I budgeted in knowing what I'm going to spend, where my money's going to go every month or every two weeks, every week, wherever that paycheck comes from, have I set aside a regular percentage amount that I'm going to give to the work of the gospel through my local church? Are you tithing? That's the question. Have you budgeted for that? Are you counting on that? Or are you paying off all your bills and then with whatever's left over at the end, you consider giving that to God? Do you have a budget? Are you budgeting for gospel giving? And then third and finally, are you following your budget? You can say, I have a budget and I've budgeted for gospel giving. But if you're not following your budget, if it's just like a nice thing you have framed up on the wall as a, I don't know, a, a, a list of hopeful expectations one day, then you're not really exercising that discipline of honoring God regularly as he gives to us new mercies every morning. We are to use regularly all that he has given to us for his glory. Have a budget, budget gospel giving, and then follow it. Start there and see how God, how God will bless and impact and mature your life in Christ and his ability to use all that you have and to lead you to use all that you have for his glory. We follow God's pattern. He gives regularly, but also he gives generously. God doesn't just give new mercies every morning. He gives with generosity. In his letter to the younger senior elder of the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy these words to instruct the church. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19? <clears throat> Paul writes this to Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. Ephesus... The city where Timothy served was a significant city with many wealthy people in it. Doubtless, some of them came to faith in Jesus Christ through Paul's missionary work there and were saved from their sins into the family of God. And these wealthy Christians who were wealthy before they knew Christ remained wealthy even after they knew Christ. But to be wealthy, to be wealthy as a Christian requires a particular perspective on wealth. That is what Paul is instructing Timothy to teach the people there in Ephesus. Wealthy Christians are not to be snotty or to be proud of their wealth. The word that Paul uses is that word haughty. Not to be snotty or proud about what they have. Neither are they to hoard up their wealth, to store it all away, and to put their hope in it. 
That is a sort of perpetual rainy day fund that, that far sur- surpasses any needs that any rainy day might actually bring. Rather, those who are rich in this age, wealthy in this life, and followers of Christ are to put their hope in God. Amen. Not stuff, not things, not money. But to put their hope in God who is the source of their eternal life, who has given to them generously all that they have. Paul has in view here, not that God has given wealth in his generosity, though that's not out of the question here, but rather that God has given generously salvation from sin. The generous giving that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy is, is not first and foremost money in the bank, but a right relationship with him. Salvation from our sins and, and, and being restored to the kind of life being connected to God, our creator, that we were designed to have. That is God's greatest show of generosity. Amen. It is the greatest gift given to the least deserving and least capable of repaying it. Do you see? You do not deserve salvation. I do not deserve forgiveness of my sins. In fact, dear friends, there is nothing that you or I could do to hope to earn salvation from God. If there were, and he gave it to us, if I could somehow prove my worthiness to God and thus receive salvation or be saved, then that's not really generous, is it? That's just payment for good deeds done. But scripture tells us the complete opposite. That all of us in our sin, in our rebellion against God, that we have acted as spiritual traitors to the cosmic king of all, of all things. That we have made ourselves enemies to him. But as Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love to us in this. That while we were still sinners, while we were traitors to the king, while we were rebels against God and his glory, Christ died for us. Amen. Now that's generosity. Yeah. When you don't deserve it and you can't repay it and God gives it anyway, that's generosity. Forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God is given to us without payment. We don't have to repay his grace to us. And it is given in full measure to sinners who cannot get it on their own. So, dear friends, if God gives the greatest of gifts with such generosity... We should then use in generous ways and with generous hearts all that God has given to us. Spiritually, yes. We ought to give in generous ways the gospel message that we have believed and received that has saved us from our sin. We ought to give that generously to others. But also we ought to use all physical things that God has given to us in his generosity for his glory. Our finances, our homes, our possessions, all of it for his fame. So then... Following the pattern of God who gives generously. In love for God who gives grace without measure. You then give generously in ways that reflect the gospel. Seek to give from your finances to use your home. To use your car. To give those things. To give the use of those things. Generously. In ways that reflect God's love to you in Christ through the gospel. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in his second letter, 2 Corinthians. He's writing to them, and we'll, we'll look more at the situation here in just a moment. Writing to them, encouraging them to give a financial gift that he can then take to the church in Jerusalem who's experiencing a famine at the time. And he encourages the church at Corinth this way in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and following. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not holding back. 
and not under compulsion as though someone is forcing them to give. Give as he's decided in his heart, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. True generosity, Christian, is not a matter of amount, but a matter of the heart. It begins in the heart. If you're giving even a large amount to gospel services, to to gospel work through your local church or through other religious uh, charities, if you're giving a lot of money, maybe a, a, a generous amount of money in the eyes of the world, but your heart is doing it reluctantly, like you don't really want to, but you feel guilty if you don't, so you give a whole bunch. Or you feel like someone else or, or even some kind of religious obligation is compelling you to give against your own will. You're not really giving generously. Our gifts to God out of our finances, the way we use our homes, the way we loan out our vehicles and use our electronic devices. As we intend to use those things generously for God's glory, we must do so with a cheerful heart. Out of gratitude for God who gives it and with joy for the gospel good, for the spiritual good that giving those things can do for others. True generosity is not a matter of amount, but a matter of the heart. So get your heart straight first. As we seek to give generously, as God gives generously, here are some diagnostic questions to ask yourself again. First of all, does my attitude about giving reflect God's heart for my soul? Does my attitude for giving, about giving, reflect God's heart for my soul? Soul, Have I really grasped and held on to and, and beheld the deep love that God has for me? That he would send his son, Jesus, the eternal son of God, to add humanity to his nature, to die for my sins. To give me salvation I didn't deserve and that I can't pay back. Do I really understand how generous God has been to me? Do I really understand how how much God has loved my soul so as to offer me salvation through faith in Christ? Dear friends, true generosity begins there. True generosity begins with looking at all that we have with the same sort of freeness, liberty, if you will, that God has uh, looked upon us with. That God would spare no expense to save us from our sin. So then we also ought to look at everything we have and spare no expense to see the kingdom of God expanded in the world through what we have been given by God. Does my attitude about giving reflect God's heart for my soul? Second question. Do I expect my giving to be used for what I want? Am I giving to the local church? Am I giving to this other charity, this other Christian organization for gospel work, expecting them to do something specific with it? Or am I giving it to them, trusting that God, who has given generously to all, will give wisdom to those that I'm giving it to, to, for it to be used for his glory? Am I giving with strings attached? That's the question we're asking. Third, in seeking to give generously, do I secretly hope others will see me giving? Or that others will know how much I give. Do I want to be noticed for my generosity? Right again, that's a matter of the heart, isn't it? One who gives, wanting to be noticed for his generosity, is not in reality generous. He's still seeking to get something 
for himself. And maybe not financially, but, but maybe he's, he's giving generously so that he'll, he'll be recognized for his giving and get a, get a position on a particular board or in a certain committee at the church or, or maybe buy himself into a deaconship or something. Do you secretly hope others will see you giving or to know how much you give? If so, Jesus has a word for us that those who give in order for others to see them will have their reward when others see them. If all you want is for people to think that you are a generous person, then give lots of money. Sure. But that's all the reward that you'll get is in knowing you gave a lot and that other people knew it. But if you'll give in, in the quiet cheerfulness and generosity of your own heart to God and, and to his wisdom to use for his glory in his ways freely expecting nothing in return, then you really are practicing generous giving, cheerful giving. Seek to give generously in love for God who gives grace without measure. Give generously in ways that reflect the gospel. Then third and finally, as we look at God's pattern for giving, shaping our pattern for giving, we see that God gives sacrificially. God gives regularly. His mercies are new every day. God gives generously, giving us salvation from sin to those who did not deserve it and cannot pay it back. And God gives sacrificially. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. During Paul's third missionary journey through the Roman Empire, he stopped to write letters to the embattled church at Corinth. Corinth was a hot mess of a church. They had a lot of issues, a lot of conflict. But they were still Christ's church, weren't they? Saved by God's grace through their faith in Jesus. And so Paul writes to them to help them understand who they are in Christ and the kind of life that ought to be lived by those who have been saved from their sin. He's, he's writing to remind them of who they are and how they are to live. To follow Christ is to be like him. It is to repent of sin and to trust him and to be made inwardly and outwardly like Christ. It also means that as Christians, we are part of a family of faith who care for one another. As we said before, at the time this letter was written, there was a famine and a food shortage in Jerusalem. And the Christians who were there were struggling to have enough food to eat. And so Paul, on this missionary journey, made it a point to gather a collection from the churches in Greece and in Asia that he might take that monetary gift back to Jerusalem. And so here in the second letter, Paul encourages the church in Corinth to give to this offering, this special collection in a way that went beyond mere generosity, but was sacrificial. A gift that would show their love for the saints in Jerusalem. But Paul, in encouraging the church in Corinth to give sacrificially, does not just say, give till it hurts. Instead, he gives a standard for sacrificial giving. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes this. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of, earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Sacrificial giving for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel, takes place in the pattern of Christ. Do you see? Christ, being by very nature God, the owner of all things, embraced 
poverty and the life of a servant as he added humanity to his nature in order to die for our sins. You want a picture of sacrificial giving? Look to Jesus. The eternal son of God who stepped out of glory, added humanity to his eternal nature that he might die for our sins and be raised from the dead to bring us into right relationship with God. Though he was rich, says Paul, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is then the godly pattern for our stewardship, for true sacrificial giving, giving like Christ who gave all for our salvation. God gives sacrificially. So then we being saved by Christ must follow him by giving sacrificially for the good of others and the gospel. We must be ready to give in painful ways for the good of others. Not to be seen, not to be recognized, but knowing that out of my giving, this is doing spiritual good to others. Again, here are a few questions to ask yourself to determine if you are truly giving sacrificially. Or questions to ask yourself and to maybe evaluate your your giving to, to help to shape it to be more sacrificial. Some of these relate to also generous giving. And so there's some overlap here. But the first is this. Am I giving in order to get something in return? Sacrificial giving does not give in order to get. Christ does not give his life in order to get anything from us. In fact, there's nothing that we can really give him of, of any worth other than the glory of our lives and worship to him. Am I giving in order to get something in return? Secondly... Am I giving with strings attached? Christ does not give his life with strings attached for our sins. He dies to pay the penalty for our sin. For each one who places faith in him. And he does not save us so that in order to force us to live holy lives, but he saves us so that we might be able to live holy lives. You see, Am I giving in order to get something in return? Am I giving with strings attached? Third, is my giving limited by my own desires? Do I only give when I want to? That wouldn't be very sacrificial, would it? God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, even in his last moments, in the, before he was arrested, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, Father, if there's any other way, If there's any other way for you to work your work of redemption, then let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. I'm not saying that Christ did not desire to die for our sins, but Christ in his humanity, looking forward to what was coming, saw great suffering in that. And said, God, if there's any other way, do it that way. But, but, your will is more important than my will. Your desires are greater than mine, so I will give as you lead. Is my giving limited by my desires, by the things that I want to give to? Am I withholding giving to the gospel, uh, gospel work from my own home church? It's a diagnostic question to ask. And giving sacrificially. If you are withholding giving financially, supporting the, the ministry financially of this church of which you are a member, if you're withholding that for any particular reason, you are not giving sacrificially. Dear friends, give. Give generously. Give regularly. Give sacrificially. I'm not saying give till it hurts, but, but give in such a way that you feel it. 
Do you know that uh, research done by Pew Research and by uh, the Barna Research Group has found that on the whole, evangelicals in the United States only give 2.4% of their income to charitable causes? I wonder if that same statistic holds true in our own church. If all of us are just giving God the 2.5% leftovers. Or are we seeking, as Scripture instructs us, to give sacrificially by beginning with the tithe, by beginning with 10%, right off the top, straight to God's gospel work with no strings attached, trusting that, God, you will lead and guide our church to do what is right, to do what is wise with the gifts that I'm given, giving. By the way, they're not mine anyway, God. They're yours, and so I'm giving them back to you, trusting that you'll do with them what, what is needed. Friends, if you're struggling to give sacrificially, And not giving 10% to your local church, to your home church. If you're a member of another church that's not First West, give your tithes there, okay? They, they, They need the financial support as well. But if you're a member of First Baptist West Albuquerque, give regularly, generously, sacrificially to the work of the gospel here. We cannot do gospel ministry without money. It just, that's a, that's a painful truth that we just have to deal with. All right? I, I, I can't, we can't buy Sunday school supplies or curriculum with bales of corn. Lifeway won't accept it. I haven't tried, but I'm pretty sure it's not an acceptable form of currency. We can't pay our staff who do such awesome work to help lead and to guide and direct the ministries of our church without finances. We can't keep the lights on. We can't make basic repairs around the building to make sure that this facility can be used for God's glory and for gospel proclamation in this community here in Taylor Ranch if if we don't have the funds to do it. So Christian, if you have been withholding giving to the gospel work from your own home church, I would challenge you today, start. Start giving. Start giving sacrificially. Make it a commitment. Use that budgeting tool to help you to be able to set aside at least 10% of your income right off the top, right before taxes, straight to God and to his work here in the church. Likewise, know that your church is setting an example for sacrificial giving also. Every month, we send 11.5% of every dollar that is given straight onto the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. The cooperative program uh, here in New Mexico then takes that fun- those funds that we send with no strings attached. They use some of it here in the state for church planting and uh, uh, other pastoral care, uh, caring for pastors of small and rural churches and other things around the state of New Mexico. And then they send another portion, about uh, 25, 26% on to national uh, uh, cooperative program, which then divides the funds, sending some to our international missionaries, to our North American missionar- missionaries, to our six Southern Baptist seminaries, to the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, our church is giving above and beyond a tithe to other kingdom causes. Eleven and a half percent. And as a, as a church, as a staff and, and our administrative team who is, who is instrumental in putting together that budget every year, we want to be generous with what God has given to our church. And so, dear friends, I pray that you would see the example of your home church and the way we handle our finances as an example for your own life for beginning to give regularly, generously. And sacrificially. Fifth diagnostic question. When you're asking, trying to shape your life in a way that you give sacrificially is this. Do I see my gift, what I'm giving to the church or to this cause or to that, do I see it as mine? Or do I see it as God's? It's always been his. It's never really belonged to me. But he's given it to me to use for his glory. 
If, if, if truly God is the owner of all things, it, not, it, it ought not be hard for us to then give regularly, generously, and sacrificially of all that God has given to us, beginning with our finances and moving on to other things, for his glory and the spread of the kingdom. Amen. It's all his. Yeah. It's all his. And he allows us the opportunity to glorify him in this world by using all that he has entrusted to us for his glory. May God give us greater discipline to glorify him with everything, every day, for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray.